Good morning. Uh, my name is John Holden, and we'll be reading today from God's Word in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ and he put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were included in Christ, when we heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Like a bad dream, I'm back. And it's good to be back, uh, good to be home. We are beginning a series this morning, which I'm going to mention something about in just a moment, but uh, before I do that, I wanted to say something about this upcoming semester. Um, As we often chart our course at ECC according to an academic calendar, we think in terms of semesters, two of them, and then the summer. Um, We're going to begin this year, that means today thinking about who we are, or perhaps I should say reminding ourselves of who we are. Thus the intro video DNA, what makes us who we are. And for uh, three weeks, we're going to focus on that using the phrases that you saw there. Redeeming grace and transforming truth, receiving, equipping, and sending, and finally building community. But following that, we're going to commence a series that will last the whole semester, um, perhaps entitled Insights for Living. Now, uh, you've probably heard that phrase before, uh, a ministry of another famous preacher who happened years ago to be my pastor. Um, 
but it's not copyrighted, so we can still use it if we choose to. The other thing is, don't be surprised if you come three weeks from now and the introduction is, is not insights for living. Because I'll just give you a little insight into what happens around ECC. I come up with a sermon series. I come up with a title. And the most of the time, the guys look at me and go, okay, that sounds pretty boring. Right? In other words, whatever good title comes out of this, it is not mine. It's, it's something that somebody else who's creative created. But the substance of it is the same. So today, we think about our DNA. It was in 1976 that ECC was officially established. Now, as the world turns, that's not a long time ago. 43 years and a few months to be exact. But it is quite a while ago. Because 43 years ago, I was just a child. And 43 years ago, a whole bunch of you were not even here. Not because you hadn't joined yet, but because you weren't born. And that's true of the church. It moves, it evolves, it changes over time. But when we remember who we are in particular at ECC, we certainly want to remember what attaches us. What attaches us to the history of the grander, larger church of Jesus Christ for some 2,000 years. So the phrase, redeeming grace and transforming truth, we didn't create it, we experienced it. We experienced it like the people of God for thousands of years have experienced it. But when we thought about a mission statement or a vision statement, we thought those words were particularly helpful to describe what we're doing. So several years ago, uh, the Board of Elders suggested that I take off uh, a month every year in the summer. Uh, I understand people get tired of the sound of my own voice as I get tired of the sound of my own voice, so I take off a month, and for four, four Sundays in a row, I don't preach. Usually, I show up on Sunday morning, even though I'm not preaching, I'm here during the week in the office at various times. But this year, I took the advice of the Board of Elders, which was, don't even be here on Sunday. Really take time off. I, it's starting to be a little threatening. Um, but at any rate, they, they, they said, just don't even be here. And I thought, well, now, there's an idea. Maybe I can do that. So I did. So for four weeks, I did not come to church, except during the week didn't come to church to worship with you on Sunday, and I missed it. But instead, I went to a different church every week to experience worship in other contexts. I chose not to go to churches in Bloomington because of the recognition thing, so I decided I would go to Indianapolis and go to various churches every Sunday morning. And it was, it was really an education. Um... My last week, which was last Sunday, I actually was in Florida, and I went to two churches on Sunday morning. 
And what I want to describe to you is this. I experienced everything. I mean, from 35-year-old pastors with skinny jeans and tight t-shirts. When I came here, I was 37. I might have been able to pull that off, but you wouldn't want to see it now. It, it, it doesn't strike me as the way I want to be anyhow. I, I was at that extreme in, in one worship service to the other extreme in a high church, Anglican church with a robe and a, all the elements of high church worship. I experienced churches that were huge, though only half full. And I experienced churches that were very, very small. I experienced a variety of theological trajectories, a variety of worship expressions, and it was an absolute delight. I would imagine that every church that I visited in the last four weeks would at least theoretically embrace this idea that they wanted to be a community of faith that was reflecting the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ. Even if their interpretation was different than mine concerning those words, I think most of them would embrace it. How is that unique to us? At one level, it's not. At another level, it is. And it has everything to do in its uniqueness with our location which I'll say something about a little bit later. But before I do that, if someone were to ask me, Bob, what do you think the primary message storyline of the entire Bible is? You know what I would say? The redeeming grace of God. There's so many other things that could be said, but that's the one that constantly comes back to me. The redeeming grace of God. It starts at the very beginning in the story of beginnings. When Adam and Eve, the representatives of humanity itself, walk away from God in disobedience. And God says, in spite of the fact that you were so foolish, I'm going to redeem you. We see that as a promise that Christ is coming. And things go from bad to worse because of sin. The two children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, get into a conflict and Abel is killed by his brother Cain. The story continues and the story of Noah and his family begins to emerge because in that time God says that things were so bad on the earth. So bad on the earth. Get this. That there was no righteousness to be found. Everything was evil all the time. There was not even a residual of good in God's good creation. That's the storyline. And so what does God do? This is tough to hear, my friends. God sends judgment through a flood. And what does he do? He redeems a 
few righteous souls. And he says, if you follow my commands, I'm going to redeem you from the flood. By the way, we don't have any particular references to the rest of humanity and the opportunity they may have had for the same redemption. But we have implications, I believe, in First and Second Peter that the opportunity was extended through Noah, a preacher of righteousness. God says, I'm going to punish, but I'm also going to redeem. And later, the image of Noah and the water and the ark, it becomes an image of baptism in the New Testament. The new covenant of God's grace through Jesus Christ demonstrated in baptism the redemption that comes to God's people. We we began with Adam and Eve who messed things up for all of us and we were somehow in them. We moved to Noah and the catastrophic flood and the redemption that comes through the ark passing through the waters and then we find the people of God in Egypt, slaves to a huge, massive superpower. It seems to me that one of the ways to understand what happened in the Exodus is to put it in contemporary terms. The people of Israel are a tiny minority. They're not really a nation, although they're called by God to be a nation through Abraham. And they're an oppressed minority. So imagine today a tiny island country that is under the oppression of one of the superpowers in this world. And that tiny island country wants to be free. Is there any hope for that tiny island country? None at all. Was there any hope for the Israelites who were slaves to a superpower, the greatest power known to man at that time on the earth? Not a chance. And what happens? God says, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to rescue you from slavery. And of course, he parts the Red Sea. Miraculously, the people cross the Red Sea and enter desert wandering. And you think, wow, there's the deliverance of God. Yes, that's just the beginning of the deliverance. Because for some 40 years, they wander across that desert. Violating God's covenant over and over again and returning to him. God punishing, then redeeming, and finally bringing them into the promised land. A story of redemption. The redeeming grace of God. When you think about the rest of the Old Testament, you can see it over and over again. You could see it over and over again in the cycle reported in the Judges. But you could also see something emerging later on in the history of Israel that stamps the notion of redemption deep within them. They're in exile. And their promise is that they will be restored. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed how often near Christmas we refer to the prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah. Ezekiel, where were those prophets speaking from? 
They were speaking to a group of people who were in slavery. And why were they in slavery? Because they had walked away with, from God and God said, have it your way. See how you can deal with the realities of life without me. See how you can deal with the Babylonians who are going to take you. God allows them to be oppressed once again. And in the midst of the prophetic utterances concerning the restoration of Israel to the land, in those prophetic utterances, we find more than any other place in Scripture, illusions to the ultimate redemption that will come through the Messiah, namely Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we leave the period of exiles through the prophets and the intertestamental period develops, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the redemption is announced again on the side of a hill in Judea with shepherds. I tell you now, they say to those shepherds, I've got good news for you. Good news of great joy which will be for all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And the story of redemption continues. But the story of redemption takes a turn that nobody had expected. The Messiah who's here to redeem hangs on a cross in agony and dies. Dies for what? Dies for the sins of the world. The passage we just read refers to him. It was redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The redeeming grace of God always present in the scripture. That's a wonderful story, but you know the story is not finished. You know the story is not finished because Jesus tells his church to proclaim the redeeming grace of God. And it is our mission to do so. But he says something else. He says that as you proclaim the redeeming grace of God, there is going to come a time where the redeeming grace of God will culminate and everything will be restored the way it's supposed to be. It's the book of Revelation. It's the end of the New Testament canon. It is a promise that redeeming grace of God will triumph over sin and evil and defeat the powers of Satan and all things will be restored. Wow, what a story. No wonder we picked that phrase. Reflecting the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ our Lord. In this particular place, a college town. Did you notice one theme, or maybe two, to run through that whole story of redeeming grace? Well, the first theme is this. Humanity's the problem. 
And since humanity's the problem, humanity can't fix it. We can't just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can't just be better. We can't just come up with a new political ideology that's going to solve all our problems. None of it works. So much of it's so good. But the ultimate redemption cannot come through us because we're the problem. That's why the redeeming grace of God is the only solution. God was the solution and is, so God provides the rescue. That's the first part of the phrase of our mission statement, reflecting the redeeming grace of God. The second part is the transforming truth of Jesus Christ. The transforming truth of Jesus Christ. It's not that God was just so gracious that he said, I will rescue you. God was gracious enough to rescue, and then God was double gracious to say that if you listen to what I'm saying, if you recognize what the rescue was all about, you will begin to be transformed by the truth, the reality of the proclamation that is in the word that I delivered to you. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of the book of Revelation, it is there. It's the transforming truth of Jesus Christ. Not just his redemption. What is that transforming truth? So many things. But you know one of the keys to the transforming truth of Jesus Christ? It's this. You, my friend. As significant as you might feel on some days and insignificant as you might feel on others. You, my friend, are not the result of a random cosmic accident. You did not just happen. There is purpose in the reality that we have experienced. Or to put it again, in the words of the scripture that we just read, you were chosen by God before the creation of the world for what purpose? To be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined you to be adopted as his dear children to the praise of his glorious grace. There is nothing accidental or random about that reality. It is purposeful. And that is a transforming truth that if deeply embedded in our hearts and our minds will make us think and live different than the rest of the world. There's another transforming truth. The reason that God chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. The reason is because you are created in His beautiful image. You were born to reflect the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ because you 
I'm looking at you. You're not looking at one another. But just for a second, look to your right and left. I'm serious. Look to your right and left. You might have thought you saw a friend, and you did. But there is something stunning and possibly heretical of taking a, taking a wrong way. There is something stunning about the reality of what you just did. You look into the face of God. You looked at your friend, and there was the reflected image of God in those eyes, in that face. No, they're not God. Which is precisely why they mean the redeeming grace of God. But they reflect the image of God. Every one of you do. That's a transforming truth, my friends. You're not a random accident of creation. You're made in the image of God. Third transforming truth. Every one of you has an eternal destiny. Or let's think about what Jesus said. Jesus said, first of all, your father knows you. He knows all about you. He knows your needs. He's numbered even the hairs of your head. And he wants to tell you something. Here's what he wants to tell you. That the reality of this present world, that stuff, matter, money, is not the most important thing. Why, said Jesus, would you try to gain the whole world when in reality, even if you were able to gain the whole world, you could lose your own soul? Why? Because you have an eternal inheritance. So as you walk this earth, as you encounter reality that is all around you, as you experience life itself, remember that the life that you experience is only a dim reflection of the life that is to come. And focus, even as you focus on those things, on eternal things. The fourth transforming truth is this. We're deeply flawed. I love you, but you're a mess. You're the image of God, but you're terribly sinful. And you're looking at the same. We're deeply flawed. We are thoroughly sinful. And we are absolutely in need of redemption. All of sin. And fall short of the glory of God. There's no one who's righteous. No, not even one. All of us are self-willed. And on any given day we walk away from the loving grace of our creator. That's a transforming truth, my friends. Because there's lots of voices in our world that would say that's nonsense. Lots of voices in our world that say you are essentially good. And all you have to do is grab hold of your goodness 
All you have to do is live with self-love. All you have to do is focus on what you think your particular values are so that you can achieve meaning. Transforming truth of Jesus Christ says the opposite. You're not your own. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God with your body and your spirits, which are God's. In that same book of Ephesians that we began with this morning, you were chosen by God before the foundation of the earth to what? To be holy and blameless in his sight. Later on in the book of Galatians, it says, you don't have anything. You were redeemed in order to display God's beauty and creation. You furthermore were selected to do good works which were prepared in advance for you to do. No, you're not perfect. No, you're thoroughly sinful. And yes, you're chosen for that. Wow. There's one more thing I want to mention that's a transforming truth. And it is this. The truth that comes to us in Scripture transforms us when we allow it to cleanse our hearts and our minds. When instead of just allowing it to be some sort of detached statement of truth, we, we place it deep within our hearts. And the transformative truth concerning our reality is not the same truth concerning the world's reality. That's why Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you'll be able to prove what is good and acceptable, the perfect will of God. Friends, we, we don't get our truth from pop culture. We don't get our truth from secular wisdom. Although the truth of God is everywhere in pop culture and in secular wisdom, there are many times where our culture says the opposite of the truth that God delivers to us. And so we must constantly be transforming our minds with the truth of God. We must constantly be looking at the phrases and the ideas that are considered to be wisdom and profound and compare them with the transforming truth of Jesus Christ. It's a process. And that transformation doesn't just take place by thinking. It takes place by doing. We can't just think our way to right living. We actually also have to live our way to right thinking. It's called discipleship. The transforming truth of Jesus Christ says this is the reality that you're living in and this is the way you ought to live. 
And when you live the way you ought to live, clarity concerning the reality of your world comes into focus. It doesn't come into focus just by thinking about it. It comes into focus by living a different lifestyle. And then the wisdom of the truth of God makes sense. What I've just described is pretty much a, well, it's a universal truth, isn't it? Thousands of years old. It's a discovery, not, not a creation. We just discover it. But every universal truth is shared in a particular context. There are a few people who understand this better than missionaries. They understand that the universal truth concerning Jesus Christ, which in part was just listed, must be applied in different cultures, in different ways, different times, different places. So now, to our DNA. How do we communicate, share, reflect the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ in this college town? The first thing we do is acknowledge where we are. For 20 years, I've heard resistance to the idea. Sometimes, not always. Why do we have to define ourselves as a church in a college town? Well, you could do it another way if you chose. But first, you might want to dig a great big hole in the sand and just stick your head in it. And then try to define it. Because everywhere around you, there is the rhythm of life that pulsates from the university. My friends, most of you, in one way or another, are significantly, significantly affected by the university that's just across the street. Our series of sermons develop based on the calendar. So much of our life is dictated by that rhythm. But there's something else that happens in the context of this college town. <laughs> Certain ways of expressing the same universal truth will not be heard, will not be heard in this place. Certain ways of being will not be accepted in this place. Now you may be wondering, are, are you going over the edge here? Are you leaving the universal truth of Jesus Christ? Not at all. What I'm trying to be and what we ought to try to be is to be what Paul was, all things to all people. We ought to walk into the context of this place and to ask questions, the kinds of questions that need answering in this context. My friends, there's some questions I would not even address if I was the pastor somewhere else. It wouldn't be necessary because nobody's asking the question. 
There's so many points of application that I might not make in other places because they wouldn't apply to that place. Please hear me. Hear me well. I don't mean this to be demeaning, okay? Will you accept that before I say it? But we don't live in Bedford. We just don't. It's a different place. And it requires that we speak differently. We ask questions differently. We even give answers differently. All based on the universal truth of the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ in a college town. Some of you are listening and thinking to yourself, I'm not a university student. Well, in case you didn't notice, neither am I. I don't even work for the university, and some of you don't. But there's something about life here in this place is that you live in it. By the way, um, we have a, a ministry around here called Connection which for many years has been supported by this congregation is very important to the church. It's a ministry primary to college students. It's had its highs and lows in terms of attendance, but we have never given up in focusing on that ministry. Furthermore, the Board of Elders has allowed me, in a sort of odd kind of way, to be bivocational anytime the opportunity arises. You know what I do on Tuesday and Thursday morning? At 8 o'clock, well, earlier than that, I arrive on campus at Indiana University. And I teach a class. And some of you are saying to yourself, hmm, wonder what that is. Must be something about religion or philosophy. No, I couldn't crack that door open. But maybe we'll get there someday. You know what I teach? It's a course on the history of sport in America. I knew it would bring chuckles. What's that got to do with a pastor? Everything. I'm a pastor in that context of about 120 to 30 students every semester. They know who I am. I refer to it frequently. I speak about sport. And I speak about life. And in so doing, here's what I believe. I believe in that context because of who I am. Because of the way I think. Because of the way I speak. I'm reflecting the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ in a college town. Do I preach Tuesday and Thursday? Not really. Do I talk about theology Tuesday and Thursday? Only when I see the opportunity in the development of that historical novel called Sport in America. 
Do I seem like a pastor? I don't know. Not sure. I just am who I am. And in that place, well, in that place, I feel God's presence. And I'm grateful for it. I'm not sure where your place is, but wherever it is, you're there to reflect the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ. Your opportunity will be different. It will be unexpected. But it is your calling, as it is all our callings. How do we do that? Honestly, one way we do it is right here. We get together and we celebrate the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ in this college town. How else do we do it? We share it through outreach, through helping hands, and we sing it. We sing it. I mentioned uh, being in other churches for the last month. Five churches in four weeks. I enjoyed the experience. Every single one of those churches had its own culture. I, I'm an observer of culture and a bit of a critic. And uh, I walk in the back of the church and I just look at the people. And before long, proper or improper, I've assessed the church. Something of their demographic. Something of what they do. And in every one of those churches, every one of those churches ministers in its local context. And so do we. I mentioned to the staff um, when I told them about my visit and to the board on Thursday night, I learned a lot. It was fun to be someplace different. It was interesting to ask the question about what other things we might be able to implement here. But on the way home from the airport, I was in the car with my wife and as we always did, processing what we'd experienced and talking about the various churches and the end of it, I said, you know what? When it's all said and done, I like us. I like us. We're a hybrid. We're eclectic. We're a little bit weird. Sometimes we're really difficult. But we're different. Except for one thing. We want all to express the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ in this college town. It's an honor to do so. Let's pray.
Lord, by your grace, you have established us in this place. By your love, you've given us the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of your grace. And even, Lord, we can say by your mercy, you have chosen us to reflect your image to the world. So as we begin a a new year, we pray that you will reinforce our resolve, remind us of who we are, and give us the grace and energy to be the church of Jesus Christ in this college town. In your name we pray. Amen.